If you have a Bible, what I'd like you to do for a second is just stick it in the air, okay? Because I'm kind of curious to see who all has one here this morning, okay? If you have a phone, you can stick it in the air if it has the Bible on it. Yes, okay, it's good. And we're not going to do a sword drill. You can put it down. Some of you don't even know what a sword drill is. That's okay. It's an old thing I did when I was a kid that we'd stick the Bible up, call out a reference, and then you'd speedily try to find it. But with phones, it's kind of gone away because now it's based on your processor speed. Who's first? It's not based on actual knowledge of where it is in the Bible. However, what we do not realize often is what a treasure we have in the Word of God. You may not realize this, but the Bible, to hold it in your hands like you just did and to raise it up would get you executed in several countries in our world today. Today, if you were to do that, you would be executed for the Word of God because it is illegal. It's not allowed. In many countries... Certainly, if it's not illegal to at least own it, it is certainly illegal to distribute it. If you were to give a Bible to your neighbor, you would be imprisoned. You would be perhaps executed as well. Even digital Bibles. In 2021, CBC recorded that China had banned the Bible app from the Apple store. They did not want the word of God to be accessible to people in their country not unless it was the word the way they wanted it. There are harsh penalties just for owning a book. But we know that it's not just a book. The Bible is a word like no other. That's the title of our message today. The series we're going to do, a Bible. the Bible is a word like no other. It's not just a book. In Canada, the Bible is not yet outlawed. But increasingly it is seen by our leaders, by our culture, as a poison to society, as something that certainly should be removed, as something that is declared a myth in our laws. Yet, what you hold in your hands right now, if you hold a Bible, has actually been, by men and women, declared the Word of God, but by God himself declared the Word of God, and men and women throughout the ages have spent their lives to preserve it, to translate it, meticulously translate it, and to see it shared with many people. And God has blessed that. God has sovereignly overseen that. But that is a reality of the word that we have in our hand. Because of their efforts and because of God's blessing, this is the best-selling book of all time. It's the most produced book of all time. And yet, even with that, there are still 128 million people in our world, at least, that don't have the Bible in a language that they speak. Not at all. You can go and you can research that to see, but that's 3.5 times the population of Canada that this morning will wake up and will not be able to read or understand a Bible in a language that they can communicate in. Perhaps you've heard of William Tyndale. William Tyndale, Tyndale was a great Bible translator from the 1500s who gave his life to translating the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into English. And before his work, you, if you were an English speaker, could not access the Bible in your language. His life's work was groundbreaking and it made monumental impact on the Bible that you actually hold in your hands today, assuming it's an English Bible. And even if it isn't, it most likely was deeply impacted by his work. But his work, if you're familiar with his story, was not appreciated by the people of his day. In fact, he was betrayed then he was strangled, and if that wasn't enough, they burned his body at the stake, 
condemning him of heresy, all because he loved the word of God and wanted it to see it in the language of the common people. That's the Bible that you hold in your hands today. And William Tyndale's final words before he was burned at the stake or rather strangled were, Lord, open the eyes of the king. Because the king did not at that time want the word of God in the language of the people. They wanted to control it. And two years, within two years, King Henry VIII is said to have authorized and to made desired that a copy of the Bible that was based on Tyndale's translation into English be in every parish in England. That's how powerful God is to change things through the life of faithful men and women. But it's God's word, a word like no other. Tyndale believed that God's word was a word like no other, that it was unique, that it is unique. And he's not alone in that sentiment. We're going to be looking today at Psalm 119. Psalm 119 Verses 97 says this, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The person writing Psalm 119, inspired under the Holy Spirit, believed God's word was unique. Unique enough to be meditated on all the day. But as we look at Psalm 119, this is the question I want you to consider this morning is, what's your attitude towards the Bible? What's your attitude towards it? Do you value it? Is it precious to you? Would, you? would you actually risk your life to own a copy of the Bible? Would you risk your life to share a copy of the Bible with someone other? Do you believe it's a word like no other? Or do you simply think, realistically, it's just like another book on the shelf. It's kind of like the self-help book that you have at home. These are important questions that I think each one of us will need to answer in the days ahead. I mentioned already, in our culture, the Bible's not illegal, but increasingly, it's seen as a poison, and it's being pushed out of public life, certainly. And it's meant not to be. God meant for the Bible to be very public. He meant for it to transform your behavior and actions. And unless you believe the Bible is a word like no other, that's our, our goal if you don't believe that, the Bible will take a smaller and smaller place in your life, which it already has in the mind of most Christians in Canada. And then it will become ineffectual in our lives because we don't actually read it. You know, Satan doesn't care how it happens that we neglect God's word. He could take people and try to convince them to make laws to outlaw the Bible in Canada, but he's smart enough to know he doesn't need to do that if nobody's reading it. Why bother? It's easier. It seems like there's not persecution when the Bible isn't outlawed, but if nobody's reading it, all the same to him. So to say that, and to combat that rather, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at Psalm 119 and see four ways that the Bible is unique. It's a word like no other. We're going to see how it's being attacked in our culture and then what our response should be to this. And hopefully you're paying attention because it's a big deal. God's word is such a big deal. So looking at Psalm 119, if you've never read Psalm 119, I don't blame you. I understand. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's 176 verses long. It's actually longer than some books of the Bible. It's long. And many people in their daily reading might say, I'll read a chapter of the Bible. And then they get to Psalm 19 or 119 and they realize how long it is. And they're like, ah, moving on to Psalm 120, right? Or they break it up hopefully over a few days or just chew in and read it. 
Psalm 119, though, it's 176 verses long, and it has this feature about it that is totally awesome. It's so beautiful and unique, but you miss it in the English. Okay, this is one time when Hebrew is actually really useful to know and to see. And your Bible, if you look in it, it's an English Bible, and you'll see probably at the beginning of verse 1, it'll say a Hebrew word. It'll say Aleph. Okay, that's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And if you scroll down or you, you just, uh, what do you do with your eyes when you scroll down a page? I guess you scroll down a page, right? You look down the page at verse 9. Right before verse 9, it's going to have Beth. That's the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. What you don't see, and what we'll show you on the screen in just a moment, is that the first eight letters, or the first eight verses, rather, of the Hebrew Psalm 119, the first word in each line, in each verse, starts with the letter A, the letter Aleph, I should say, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The second eight verses start with the letter Beit, or Beth. And then all the way through, through the remainder of the psalm, every eight verses, the first line, the first word of that verse starts with it. It's an acrostic. And this was an amazing memory device that they used so that people could actually memorize all of Psalm 119. It's so neat. It's so neat. It's so well designed. It's so beautiful. It's beautiful poetry that we don't even get to see and appreciate because, again, we're in the English. But you can see it in your Bible. It's marked out there. And this would give not only a good memory device to the Hebrew listeners who often would listen to the word rather than read it early on, but it also communicated A to Z, their Z, so to speak. It's all, we're what we're talking about in he Psalm 119, we're talking from the start to the finish, we're encapsulating it all. And this whole Psalm is about the supremacy of God's word. It's about how awesome his word is. He spends 176 verses talking about God's word is awesome. It's so good. Lord, teach me it. And at the time the psalmist was writing, he was probably only referring to a handful of books of the Old Testament. For sure, the first five, the, the Pentateuch or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, possibly also some of the, the prophets were accessible to him, but he did not for sure have access to the New Testament or knowledge of the specifics of who Jesus Christ is. And he can go for 176 verses talking about how awesome God's word is. So just imagine for us today, we could fill up way more than 176 verses with how awesome God's word is. It's, it's a long psalm though. And here's a couple of tips that'll just help you as you study it and read through it yourself, okay? Because it's, it's a little bit confusing or confusing. It's a little bit organizationally, it's beautiful in the Hebrew, because it's organized with the acrostic. Thematically, though, it hits and repeats over and over again, which is actually kind of difficult to preach because I'm like, where, which, which section I'm preaching? And, and I, I'm not preaching all 176 verses this morning, but how would we do this? How would we, how would we tackle it? But it's also helpful to know in almost every single verse of this psalm, it references God's revelation in one way or another. And it uses about eight different words to do that. Depending on your English translation, it might say law, it might say laws, it might say word or statutes or testimonies, commands, decrees, precepts. You'll see all these in almost every single word or every single verse. And they're meant to be used interchangeably. We could, we could dial down to the specific nuance of each word, but because it's Hebrew poetry, that's not what he's, he's getting at. He's trying to reinforce. He's coming at multiple angles. God, your rules are awesome. Your word is true. It's everlasting. It's good. 
And he's saying all these things about God's word. So just know that thematically, it's going to jump back to the same themes over and over again. And it's going to use these eight words that are meant to just drive us back to God's revelation. So clearly, whoever authored Psalm 119, he's, he's excited about the word of God. He's excited about God's laws and his revelation. And the question I want to ask for you is just why? What is it about God's word that's so unique that he has leaned in? He is writing 176 verses about it. Well, it's, it's captured really nicely in one verse, verse 160. And we're going to come back to this verse several times. So earmark it, underline it, whatever you want to do, make note of it. Psalm 119, verses 160. It says there, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The first thing we see right in that verse and throughout the whole Psalm is it's your word. It's the word of God. The Bible is unique because it's the word of God. That is a bold claim. That is a, a, a if, you, if you back up and think about it, that's a radical claim that what we have right here is the word of God. If you have Psalm 119, 160 in your, your, uh, your finger on that page, go over to verse one. Okay, verse one is a good place to start usually when you're reading. And it says this, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Not just the law of the land, not just the laws we made up, the law of the Lord. Verse two, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, his testimonies. Every verse you look through and when it talks about his word, his revelation, there's some type of ownership word that points it back to it's God's word. The psalmist, when he was talking about the, the Torah, was not thinking, oh, this is just some book that a guy named Moses wrote. He was thinking, this is God's word. They're not our words. They're his words. They're not the words of a PhD, bunch of commoners or anything like that. They're the words of God. And that, to the majority of people here, is probably not surprising. You've, you've grown up being taught that or you've come to church and you've heard that. We say, we're going to open God's word. It's, it's common language, but we miss the awe of that. We miss the implications of it as well. A few verses, I'll just read them to you that you are probably familiar with if you have talked about this being God's word before. 2 Timothy 3.16, you can just write these down if you want. That's a, that's a key verse when we're talking about this being God's word. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's, it's his, okay? And its origin is from him. Yet we do not deny, obviously, that these words were written through a human pen, okay? Moses wrote down. Paul, the apostle, wrote down. But how did that work then? Well, this is another key passage you should write down and remember and keep in your mind if you ever want to talk to people about this. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says there, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what we call the doctrine of inspiration, how we got the Bible. Okay, it has to come from God to us somehow. So how did it happen? It came as the Holy Spirit moved 
in the life of these men. He didn't dictate. God did not say, I want you to write exactly this all the time. Certainly, sometimes he, he said exactly that through his prophets, but he moved. So the, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing, it has the, the flavor of the Apostle Paul, which is different than the flavor of when you read the Gospel of John. It's, it's different. It's according to their personalities, but yet it's not by the will of man. The Holy Spirit moved. This is what we teach and believe about the doctrine of inspiration. When we talk about this, we will use words like we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of God's word. Okay, so this is fancy language to say that it, we believe it down to the word and we believe that all of it is inspired by God. So cover to cover, not the footnotes, not the study notes that are written by men, but the rest is we believe inspired. So we believe it's God's word. That's, that's a big deal. Now, many will attack this idea and they'll attack it and say, no, it's not God's word. Or maybe a more subtle version is, well, it's God's kind of like ideas and he communicated them, but we don't have, we can't, we don't have to be like super precise about each word. It's kind of like he inspired the thought and as long as the, the general thought gets across, we're okay. And we, we, we reject that. We would say, no, it's to the word. And I want to give you another passage that you can kind of keep in your, your mind. This is equipping time for you to remember why that's a big deal. Okay. So we're not, we're not exegeting this passage per se. It doesn't relate totally to our, our topic of discussion, but it does point out the specific use of words in God's revelation. So Galatians 3.16, the apostle Paul, he's making an argument to the Galatian church. And this is what he says. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. He distinguishes between a singular and a plural as a key lynch point in his argument. So yeah, words matter. Words matter. The case of words matter. The plurality or singularity of a word in scripture matters. This is why it's so important that you understand verbal plenary inspiration, because otherwise we end up with all these crazy ideas. This is where some people go to John 1.1, and they say, in the beginning was a word, and the word was a God. So to say that Jesus was just a God, and we were like, no, 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 you can't do that. The Greek doesn't do that. In the beginning was the word, okay? And the word was God. Specific, it, it matters. If it's God's revelation to us, it matters down to the word. We believe that's a big deal because God cares it's a big deal. He, he reveals that it's a big deal. So since they're God's words, one of the takeaway implications of that, the, the primary one is they have authority over us. I was asking the staff this week, what do you think is the biggest threat to God's word within the church? So not without the church, not, not, not in the culture. The culture just like, yeah, it's a myth, whatever, forget it. But in the church, what do you think is some of the biggest threats? And one of the, the staff, I think rightly said, I think the authority of God's word. Many people will say it's God's word, but when it actually comes down to, do I submit myself to the word? Nah, right? I read it like James says, I read it and I go away and I kind of forget what I read. That's not how we're to treat God's word. These are the words of God. They have authority over us. Psalm 119, I mentioned some of those words that refer to the revelation of God. Many of them are commands, rules, statutes. Those are authority words. Those aren't 
suggestion words. It doesn't say blessed is the man who, who considers the suggestions of the Lord, right? No, blessed is the man who obeys the word of the Lord, who obeys the commands of the Lord. Now, in my house, maybe like your house, our kids get into squabbles from time to time. And so they play often in the basement, which is out of my earshot. And then they come up, one of them comes up invariably and is like, dad, this is the issue. This is what's going on. Come down and tell the other sibling what to do. And usually they're not looking for us to come up with some creative strategy to change things. They're actually like, he stole that from me. What they're looking for is for us to have authority in the situation. And so even if I tell my daughter, go down and say to your brother, dad says, give it back. Well, you you hear them go down and they're like, dad says to give it back, right? (laughs) The point though is they're looking for authority. They want authority. So they appeal to me, who is the authority in the house, for that. When we go to God's word, he has authority. He has authority over us and he has authority over the situations we deal with. When we're counseling somebody, we don't go to our authority. We point to, dad says this. And that's, that's what he says. Don't blame me. That's what he says. And I'm going to enforce that as God's representative in this moment. Okay? The word has authority because it's God's word. Now, some people will attack it and they'll say, yeah, it's a myth. Some people will say, yeah, it doesn't have authority. It's just useful historical writings. But that is not the truth. And God's word has not only authority over the church and over the Christians in the church, but God's word has authority over our culture, over our world. Our world and our culture is increasingly like the kid in the basement that's like, yeah, you can play with your toys and do what you want, have your dad's authority, but don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what he says. Our, our culture is kind of fine with us being gathered here, sort of, on a Sunday telling each other, this is what God says, but don't tell them this is what God says. Did you know you can bring your Bible, as I'm told anyways, into Saudi Arabia, into a, a very Muslim country, you could bring your ESV Bible as long as it's for personal use only. As long as you're reading it for yourself and you're a Christian, fine. But don't you dare give it to a Muslim. Don't you dare bring two copies because then, oh, it's not just about you personally. It's about others being influenced by the word of God. We love God's word. We see its authority in our own lives. We should see the authority in our own lives. And also the authority God has over the whole earth. These are his words. The pressure is on and it's mounting to take the Bible out of public life and then it will be to take it out of personal life. Yet I want to encourage you. We live in, yeah, in one sense, a bad time in history because there is increasing opposition to the Lord. But in human history, we actually live in some of the best years. Okay, like optimistically, think about this. My kids have access to God's word multiple English translations, multiple helps from the best scholars that God has created, the best minds God has created that have devoted their life to studying God's word, it's accessible to them. If you grew up a thousand years ago and you grew up in a middle to low class home, you had no access to that. You had 
maybe you didn't even have access to God's word in your home in a written copy, much less to be able to understand it. My kids could have, we, we live in a culture of a degree of affluence. They could spend time learning Greek and Hebrew on their own through YouTube and they could understand God's word. Now there's huge dangers because the, the most brilliant minds that have been twisted by the, the devil to attack God's words are also at their fingertips, right? But we have such a tremendous blessing. We have, we have way more than cultures before us had in terms of access to God's word, the ability to understand it, and the ability to share it. With a couple of clicks, most of us can share it with a couple hundred people that quick, unparalleled opportunity with God's word. So, so be encouraged by that. Yeah, we live in a discouraging time, but God is faithful. Nothing's new under the sun, but we have so much opportunity. But we have lost often the sense of authority of God's word. And when we lose the sense of authority that it is God's word, then we're done for. Then it's game over. Pastors sadly will get up to preach and they'll preach God's word, except they won't preach God's word. They'll get up and maybe, maybe at best, sometimes they'll like read a text at the beginning of the sermon and then forget about it for the rest of it. Or at worst, they get up and they champion the latest leadership book, the latest human ideologies of philosophies. And that's not biblical. As I mentioned, counselors could go around and they could say, this is God's word. This is what the authority of God's word says. Or they could just go around and say, this is what the latest trends are saying. This is what WikiHow said to do. So that's probably a good idea. You could have Christians in their own lives that are saying things that are totally not biblical. They're, they're dismissing the authority of God. They maybe cherry pick what they want from scripture or twist it. As as has famously been said through the misquoted and flat, the terribly abused verse, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context, right? That's not what it says. But it's true. If you want to find a verse to back up what you're thinking right now or your ideology, you could just take it, lift it out of the context. There's a verse in scripture that says there is no God. Oh, but it's like the context is the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But you could, you could take scripture and mangle it if you wanted. Dismiss the authority, but then we're goners. So my question, back to the question I was asking at the beginning. When you open this, is it just another book on the shelf? Or is it the unique word like no other? Is it the word of God? Or has the lie, the original lie of the garden of Eden slipped in where it's, yeah, he didn't really say that. Uh, you know that's not really historically accurate. Like maybe that section of the Bible isn't actually part of the Bible. Maybe there's actually other parts of the Bible that they're hiding from you. All kinds of lies, all kinds of baloney out there. It's a bold claim. This is the word of God. But as the word of God, there's three other things we want to see that are true about it. Psalm 119.60, it says, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So the Bible is unique because it's true. Now it's true because it's God's word. Everything that we're going to say from here on just ties back to it's God's word, but it is true. It is without error, we say. We call that the doctrine of inerrancy, which we'll pull apart in a few minutes. It does not lie. What it says, that means you can believe. What God says will happen and it will happen. We live in a world of what people say is disinformation or misinformation or just straight up lies. When I was in high school, I remember being taught how to discern what were trustworthy websites. And, you know, we knew Wikipedia wasn't trustworthy because people could change it. So you had to go to websites that had .org 
behind them or .edu. And those were supposed to be reputable, trustworthy sources. That's not the case. <laughs> that's, not, that's not discernment. That's not where you're going to necessarily find truth. But God's word does not lie. Hugh Laurie, who plays House in the, the TV drama series, House, has this famous line and he says, everybody lies. And he says it all the time because people come and lie about their medical conditions or their symptoms or whatever else, right? And he's not far off. Everybody does lie. They lie time and time again. Our world lies. People misrepresent things, but God's word never lies. It's the only trustworthy, true source of information. The psalmist loves the word because he can depend on it. In a world of chaos, it is his rock. It is dependable. Verse eight says, I will keep your statutes. Verse 27, because he says, I will keep your statutes, because it's true, he's crying out and he says, make me to know, understand the way of your precepts. Actually, that comes up a ton in the Psalm over and over again. He's like, teach me, teach me, make me understand it. Help me understand it. Open my eyes to your word. You read through it. And the reason is because he realizes it's true. And because it's true, it's the best investment of his time. Proverbs 30 verse five reminds us, every word of God proves true. Hebrews 6, 18 reminds us, God cannot lie. But some of us will be like, yeah, but that's circular reasoning. You just went to the Bible and said, the Bible says the Bible's true. Well, I could do that too. I could write a book and just say, this book is completely true. And that, therefore, that statement is completely true. And that's a, that's a reasonable question that a lot of people have. They're like, oh, you can't just use it to prove it. But did you realize it actually is true? And the way, one of, one of the ways we can see that it's true and that scripture points to its truthfulness is fulfilled prophecies. So, Isaiah, who wrote 700 years plus before the time of Jesus, wrote with incredible detail exactly where Jesus would be born, the fact that none of Jesus' bones would be broken, and on and on and on. It's worth your time. If you haven't ever done a study into biblical prophecy and the fulfillment just in Jesus, it's amazing. It's impossible, humanly speaking, like a needle in a haystack, even more than that, to be able to predict those things that way. So God's word has proven true over and over and over and over again. It declares it, but it is true because it is the words of God. Okay. So the other reason you could, you can trust the truthfulness of the Bible is that it actually works. It's a, it's a Christian worldview that is fully sustainable, workoutable. It actually makes life work. A worldview we would say is like the way you, you see the world, the way you are to operate in the world. There's a lot of worldviews out there that are inconsistent and unlivable. People hold to them, but they don't hold to them consistently. They always beg, borrow, and steal from a Christian worldview parts to make it work. The Christian worldview is the only one where it's completely unified and livable. It's true. Now, I mentioned inerrancy a few minutes ago that we believe in the, the doctrine of inerrancy. And I, I think it would be helpful to just explain a few things to kind of set the stage for your understanding and your ability to engage in culture, okay? We believe that all of God's word is without error. But when we say we believe in the doctrine of inerrancy, we are actually referring to the original autographs, okay? So what that means is like when the apostle Paul wrote out the letter of Romans through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and sent that off, those words are without error at all. 
Now, here's the challenge. And a lot of Christians get a little uneasy about this. We don't have Paul's original letter to Romans. Okay, we don't have the original autographs. Many people are like, well, yeah, but the manuscripts. The manuscripts are not the original autographs. Okay, don't freak out. I didn't just destroy your faith or something. Okay, that's actually, biblical scholars have known this for millennia. Okay, we don't have the original autographs, but that is totally normal for ancient documents. Okay, what we have is copies of those documents. And now you're like, oh, this just made me uneasy. Yeah, yeah, it it can make you kind of uneasy at first until you realize that the copies are widely distributed over the ancient Near East. And when you compare them from multiple countries, this is called textual criticism is what they do. They take them, a copy from Egypt, a copy from Northern Israel, a copy from Turkey, and you compare them and you look to see for similarities and differences. And what's incredibly amazing about the Bible is it stands totally unique with ancient documents in this way. Just consider this, okay? We don't have Aristotle's documents, original documents from the fourth century BC, okay? We also don't have those, so surprise, surprise. The earliest copies that we have of Aristotle's documents, there's five manuscripts in known existence from 1400 years after. 1400 years after, that's the earliest copies that we have, okay? That's crazy how long, nobody, in the, nobody that I've ever met has ever disputed Aristotle, disputed what Aristotle said. They just take it at face value. The Bible, in contrast, we're just talking about the New Testament, and you can do a ton of study in this. It's, it's actually worth your time. There's between five and 6,000 manuscripts with the average length of them being 450 pages, okay? There's some that are totally just tiny, small fragments, and that would count as a manuscript, okay? But average length, 450 pages, and they date within 100 years of when scripture was written, of when the New Testament was written, from the second century. This is so awesome. If you look up, just write down P52 manuscript, and then look it up, okay? P52, and you'll find out it's a small fragment of the Gospel of John that dates from the second century. John wrote later in the first century. It's amazing how close it is. Like, historically, you might, you might if this is the first time you've ever heard this, be kind of like, oh, that makes me feel kind of uneasy. But just look and do your research and see, first of all, it's just unparalleled in terms of how close it is and also in the volume of them. P46 is another cool manuscript from the Chester Beatty collection. It's in Ann Arbor. You can actually drive over. I think they only display it once a year. But if you go to Ann Arbor, to the University of Michigan, I think it is, um, and they'll display it once a year, these these fragments from the late second century to early third century from Paul's gospel or Paul's, Paul's epistles. Okay. So, so neat and so incredible. Now I mentioned that sometimes they look and compare and contrast for differences. And there are sometimes differences. The majority of the differences I'm going to just tell you are differences of word order or spelling errors in terms of like, have you ever tried to copy out a section of scripture and try to do it like, without any errors, it's hard. It's definitely hard. Now these manuscripts and there's the scribes were way more diligent than we are, but they still made errors at times. But the errors they made were like Jesus Christ instead of Christ Jesus. Okay, so like nobody's gonna walk away and be like, oh, I don't know what that means. Okay, so 
<laughs> Honestly, do your research. Don't be caught off guard when somebody's like, well, yeah, we don't have the original autographs. So yeah, your doctrine of inerrancy doesn't mean anything. What we have, obviously the English translation, you have to translate it from Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic to English. But what we have, we have great assurance accurately represents what Paul wrote to the Romans. Okay? Really, really important. Now, you'll, your Bibles, good Bibles will put footnotes if there's a word that maybe they're a little questioning, right? They're trying to, it's, it's different in various manuscripts. But the words are never related to the core meaning of the text. You won't find people being, oh yeah, well, maybe Jesus didn't rise from the dead because uh, the different, no, that's, it's never stuff like that. It's like literally Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. So that all to say, super awesome study of textual criticism, Make sure, though, you watch out because, again, some of the brightest minds are used to throw doubt and to question things that have no... If you, if you actually do due diligence, if you do a five-minute study and you get down the wrong rabbit hole, you're going to end up with a lot of questions that don't, don't get answers. And there are answers, but you have to do your research. So don't do just enough research to be dangerous, okay? <laughs> to be dangerous and start asking a whole bunch of questions that you don't actually care to answer. No, like... A, a foolish person, a very simple-minded person can ask a ton of questions. It takes somebody that's actually devoted to understanding God's word to look for the answers. The answers are there. They're reliable. They're truthful. Okay, God's word is inerrant, but we have to be diligent in study it. That's why it says study to show yourself faithfully approved, you know, rightly handling the word of God. Okay, so if you're willing to dig in, you're going to find amazing, well, I think an amazing wealth of information that's going to bless you. However, all this being said, the majority of people, even Christian people, spend them so much of their time just learning lies, learning stuff that is not true and wasting their time. So I just want to urge you, don't waste your time. That's part of the message this morning. There's not enough time to chase down every rabbit hole, to read every religious text all over the world. There's not enough time to read every book out there. I remember as a kid kind of coming to that realization, like, I'll never read every book. Well, Duh, you'll never meet every person. And if every person's written one word, you'll never read it all. So you have to prioritize. My parents got rid of an encyclopedia set, like one of those you know, Encyclopedia Britacana set. And I just thought it was so cool to have 20, 25 volumes or whatever else. So I, I rescued them from the trash with the idea that I'd like read them. And like I made a few, as I recall, I made it a few pages through the first one and then realized I'm never going to read through it. And so a few years later, they made their way to the trash as well. <laughs> and I was so, so sad. But you can't read it all, first of all, and it's not all true. So let me use this analogy to help you kind of think about it. You can go dig in your backyard today and look for a $20 bill. And some of you may find one. You could dig your whole backyard and excavate it. You find one that, that dropped there years ago and got buried under some leaves. You could dig there for the $20 bill, but you would be way smarter to just go to the bank and look to see a $20 bill. And if you really want to get persistent, you'd go to the Canadian banknote company up in Ottawa where they print them and say, can I see a $20 bill? Because that's where money is made. Now, when you're looking for truth, so many of us are digging around in the backyard looking for truth. It's like, yeah, you, you might find something that somebody dropped off there. It didn't come from there. It just got kind of swept up in there but it's not 
where you're going to find truth. I was watching a YouTube video just yesterday and this ad comes on, Matthew McConaughey, he's like talking about, you know, we're gonna find our roadmap for life. And he's got this, you know, his, his sound, I almost sound like him, don't I? <laughs> we're gonna find our roadmap. And he's like, I have no idea where I'm going, but we're gonna find a roadmap together. That is a total waste of your time. If you wanna find a roadmap, you just go to where the roadmaps are made, where the truth is found, Spend time studying that. So don't waste your life chasing after all these false lies, these, these truths. You know, you reach a point, if you're a, if you're a Christian, you should reach a point very, very quickly where I acknowledge this is the word of God that is true. I'm not asking anymore, is this true? I'm asking of it, what do I do? What, what is it commanding me to do? I want to understand it. And this is why Psalm 119, it's filled with 75 prayer requests or more. I counted 75, and most of them are asking, Lord, teach me your word. Help me to understand it. I don't want to be an idiot when it comes to this. Like, open my eyes. It says in verse 33 and 34, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law. So God's word is not just true. He's desiring it, but it's true. And this is where we're going to go next. It's also righteous, Okay, the Bible is unique because it is righteous. Right there, back in Psalm 119, verse 160, our kind of theme verse, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The rules are righteous. They are a reflection of, a very char- of the very character of God himself. So when the psalmist is looking at the Torah and looking at the laws of God, he realizes they're good. They're good laws, There's a tendency among Christians to look at the Old Testament with a kind of disdain. Like, oh, I'm glad we upgraded and kind of moved on from that. But they reveal the character of God, his holiness, his goodness. Psalm 119 and the entire Bible, you will not find an attitude that is critical of God's revelation. Psalm 119, there's... I think seven or eight verses, I'll list the verses off, you can look them up later, that talk about God's rules being righteous. Verse 7, verse 62, 75, 106, 137, 144, 160, 164, 172. Okay, that's how many verses just in this psalm talk about the righteous rules or the righteous commands of God. Now, our church has a a midweek program called Harvest Connect. Some of you have heard about it or come to it. It's for people aged 26 to 40. This is my little announcement plug about Harvest Connect because it doesn't make it into the announcements often. But we have been studying the Ten Commandments, and it has been a tremendous blessing. Tomorrow, we're going to finish off with commandment number 10. Our small group director, Ike Quiring, is going to be walking us through that. And you should come. If you're in the age group of 26 to 40, and I always tell people, it's not polite to ask your age when you're 40. So I kind of, if you're right around 40, you're fine. But we've been so blessed as we've walked through the 10 commandments, God's law, and understanding, first of all, how far we've drifted from it in our country, but how good it is. There's certainly bad ways to use God's law. So for example, some people take the law of God and they use it as a, a way to justify themselves before God, thinking, well, if I obey, I've obeyed all the 10 commandments, for sure I have, and I'm gonna earn my way to God. That's a bad way to use the law, right? Some people use it as a club to smash other people down. They're like, you've broken all the law and I don't care. I just want to condemn you. I just want to, I'm better. I've done it. I've obeyed them, but you're evil. That's a bad way to use the law. The good way to use the law though is to look at it and to realize it reveals who God is. 
and it reveals what he desires from his people. That's a, a tremendous blessing. But some people will use the law or they'll look at God's revelation and they'll twist it. Now this week, Pastor Blake showed me a, a clip. I think he showed it to our young adults uh, conference group on Facebook. A clip of a pastor that is talking about the design in the Garden of Eden of male and female. And he's saying, you know, it's, it's the way God made it. But basically, if I was there, I would have suggested something different. I would have suggested a better way. You know, three options, maybe a middle way. And it's like, who in the world do you think you are? That you would go and you would question God's design and say you would do something different. That is somebody who does not see God's rules or his word as righteous, as good. God's word is so good. It's better than you or me. If you ever look at scripture and you're like, ah, this doesn't look good, it's because you're not good. It's not because it's not good. This happens all the time. People will look at God's word and what he says, what he does and say, I think I could do better. I think I could improve upon that. That's why we love unapologetic preaching here at Harvest. We're like, we're going to preach this and we're not going to apologize for it. We're going to say it's good. Even if we don't understand totally how it's good or it doesn't feel good to us, it is good. We know that much. God has told us it's good. So we're going to proclaim that it's good. And we're going to tell you, trust that it's good. Trust it. Verse 14 of Psalm 119, it says, In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. The only way you can delight in something is if it's truly good. If you actually are convinced, this is, this is beautiful and very good. So his word is true. It's his, first of all, it, and as a result, it's true, it's righteous, and finally, we're going to see it's eternal. The Bible is unique because it is eternal. Verse 160, again, it says, the sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. See how we, all four things right there in that verse. So just remember, 160. Verse 89, he also says, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. God is so concerned that people understand his word is eternal. It's not going anywhere. God made it so our hearts would long for eternal things. And that's why a Christian, when they lock on to the fact that God's word is eternal, delights and loves it. It's like, this. okay, this is a good investment. This is what's going to last. The Old Testament may be called old, but it's not useless. Don't fall into the trap of just throwing away half your Bible or more than half your Bible. God's promises that he made in the Old Testament, they're there to prove he's true, to prove he's good. His laws, as I mentioned before, they're men, meant to inform us of his character and to guide us. And yes, some of the laws have been fulfilled. Certainly, you look at the sacrificial laws of the Levitical system. They've been fulfilled by Christ. We don't have to go and make sacrifices. But that doesn't mean it's not useful to read and to understand because it reveals to us how awful our sin is. If you, if you saw how many sacrifices had to be made for your sin on a daily basis, you would realize, realize just how bad your sin is. Obviously, when you look at the cross, you see that to a greater degree in terms of Christ being sacrificed for your sin. But I'm amazed over and over again, looking at just the law of God. That's fascinated me lately. Looking at it and realizing, this is good. This is so good. Our nation has drifted far from it. If you look at the past 100 years of Canadian lawmaking and culture, you'll see a huge downward slide away from God's law, away from saying, basically, we can do better. We've kind of matured past that. We don't need that. And it's sad. We're not going to change that overnight. I think Pastor Aaron has said this many times. It's like the 100-year battle. 
you're naive if you think everything's just going to get better somehow instantaneously. God could work a miracle. We're praying for that. But let's say the time comes where you have a key part in rebuilding or restoring a country to greatness. Make Canada great again, right? Yeah, that kind of idea. Let's say you have a role in that. You're going to be completely useless if you are uninformed about God's rules, God's design, and God's laws. You will be useless. You'll just swing from one man-made ideal to another man-made ideal. The time may come where you're useful for that, but the only useful ones are going to be the ones who have soaked themselves in God's wisdom and his laws. Don't underestimate the power of God's word to both work in you and through you. When I was preparing for this passage, one interesting thing I came across is that William Wilberforce, the man that was instrumental in the end of the slave trade in England, had memorized Psalm 119, all 176 verses. And he would actually recite it daily as he was walking from Parliament home through Hyde Park. Great women and men of God do great things, but they always do it connected to their devotion to God's word. Those that have done the most for the kingdom are those that have loved, have delighted in, studied, and memorized the word, hands down. Because God's word reveals him. It reveals and points perfectly to Jesus Christ. So get this, everything we've just said about the Bible, it's God's word, it's true, it's righteous, and it endures forever, is absolutely true about Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. Jesus is true. Jesus is righteous, perfectly good. And Jesus is eternal. So awesome. He's the word, the divine logos, the divine word, the one we were made to know. And so when we dive into God's word, we study it, the word like no other, what we're doing is we're not just interested in books. Christians aren't just, sure, we love books and we love this book, but it's because we love the Lord Jesus Christ, what he's done for us who he is. So I urge you, get in the word. So here's a challenge. This week has seven days and there is 176 verses in Psalm 119. I dare you to read Psalm 119, either a part of it every single day for the next seven days or the whole thing seven times if you're really keen. But at any rate, for the next seven days, dwell in the word. Make it a short a, a, a short commitment, right? If you have not read the word daily, don't just right away say, I'm going to read it every day for the next year. For the next seven days, maybe put it on your coffee maker. Some of you, coffee is the first thing that, that you do in the morning. Put the coffee, put the Bible right on your coffee maker so you cannot get to your coffee unless you get to the word. Put it on your, your dinner table, your breakfast table before you eat that we would devote ourselves to study of God's word. 